Um, so, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about unity in the local church, and we've talked about the, the need for unity in the local church. First, considering where unity comes from, that it doesn't come from our own flesh, it doesn't come from our own likes and preferences, but rather, true unity in the Christian church comes because we're united truly and really with Jesus Christ Himself through faith. That we are partakers of His death, burial, and resurrection, and that we are truly His brothers, His bride, His temple, and His body. Um, And from that, we went last week to discuss the different causes of disunity. And we tried to go through some different Bible passages that showed in the Scripture how disunity is so prevalent. And I want to hit on that just a little bit this morning as well. Just so we're reminded of disunity, its ugliness, and its prevalence in the Scripture. Um, We see in the very first pages of the Bible, we see peace being broken, disunity happening, First between God and man. As Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and broke that that blessed covenant that God made with them. But in the same instance, right? It wasn't just the unity that man had broken with God that was affected, but the man and the wife, their unity was now broken. They were, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, naked and unashamed, but now they, they... felt the need to clothe themselves. And I believe what's being conveyed there is there was a lack of trust even within the marriage relationship. They both sinned against God and against one another and now there is a broken trust. We turn over one chapter. We see Cain and Abel, the first brothers on the earth and the strongest bond that might be except for husband and wife and maybe sisters. We see two brothers rising up to kill one another in a field. At the end of that chapter, we have the first song in Scripture. It's not a beautiful song. It's rather a very evil song of Lamech rejoicing that he had killed two men for offending him and wounding him. And we could go on and on through this. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah divided because of sin and disunity. We go further. We see the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the New Testament. But I think that It might be tempting for us to think that disunity would never happen in a blood-bought, born-again congregation of believers, but we don't have to go far into the New Testament to see that that's the case. What what examples can we think of of New Testament, New Covenant believers in disunity? Ananias and Sapphira, so we... We do see in the first pages of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 5, right after that great display of unity, the people of God selling their possessions, giving it to the church so that they might be distributed among those who have the greatest need. We see Ananias and Sapphira, right? And in Acts chapter 5, and they pretend that the land that they sold, the full money was given, and it really wasn't. And uh, this causes... Peter to pronounce excommunication on them in the strictest way possible, the Holy Spirit killing Ananias and Sapphira. Um, I'm going through this quickly, so if we don't turn to a lot of these passages, we see it in Acts chapter 6 even, don't we? With the the Hellenists and the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, uh, a division in the church forming over this, right? We see it in Acts chapter 15 as heresy had 
crept into the church. And some were saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And great division rose among the people of God. At the end of Acts chapter 15, we have Barnabas and Paul. The great strife arose between them because there was a disagreement about John Mark who had left in their earlier mission. Right? And the Bible doesn't tell us who was right there. Um, I believe that we can know that Paul and Barnabas were reunited because we read in Galatians chapter 2, um, assuming that this was after this event, that it says even Barnabas was carried away with their dissimulation. Paul doesn't have in his heart an anger towards Barnabas that, well, you know Barnabas. Of course he was carried away with the dissimulation of the Jews, but he was even Barnabas. So, we go even further. We can look at the book of Philippians, which is characterized by division. 1 Corinthians, characterized by division. We even see the apostle of love, right? John. In John 3, talking about this man, Diotrephes, who is casting men out of the church. Right? Division is a, unfortunately, a common, very common thing among God's people. And so... As we keep that in mind, I want us to realize that it's true that Jesus Christ came and He really brought peace between God and man. He healed that that bond that was broken, that Adam and Eve broke in the garden, but He also, in part, is healing mankind to come together in unity. And one of the great manifestations of that should be in the church of Jesus Christ. should be in the church of Jesus Christ, but these things don't come automatically to us. There has to be effort put forth towards peacemaking in the church, going forward, forgiving one another, seeking reconciliation. The sobering passage that we have, 1 Corinthians 11.19, 11.18, Paul writes in talking about the Corinthian church and their their wicked practices during communion where some would be drunk and some would be hungry. He says this, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Notice what Paul says in verse 19, these sobering words. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Okay? So as we come to this text, what I want us to primarily have in our mind is not only are divisions inevitable because we're sinners in the church, but in some part, divisions in the local church are a part of God's plan for us before Christ comes, right? Divisions must be in the local church so that those who are approved or genuine among you may be recognized, There are always false teachers and false brethren trying to sneak into the church to be able to corrupt it by Satan's plan and design. And part of church division is that that might be recognized and known. And so what I want to put forward to you today as we go to a really practical discussion of church unity and peacemaking in particular is that we ought not to waste division in the church. Okay, and that might be a, a strange thing to say, but that we should view division and controversy rising in the church as an opportunity to bring peace, share the gospel, 
and grow one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So, division is in part necessary, and we need to have a positive biblical view of it so that we would act as the Bible wants us to act towards division. Now, when we hear of brothers and sisters fighting in the church of God, what are maybe the two most common responses, wrong common responses, that we usually have to those kind of incidents? We leave. We, we, we have flight, right? We have a fight-or-flight mechanism some people talk about. And one thing we do is we, we just go away. We flee from the situation, right? We, well, I don't want to cause greater division in the church. We, we make up all these excuses in my mind. I'm just going to leave because I'm uncomfortable with this particular situation. What's another reaction? Yes, yeah, yeah. Just avoiding them in the congregation, never talking about the problem, which is maybe a milder form of flight, right? Or we, or we, we just fight, don't we? We just take out our swords and we go after somebody. And our goal is not to make peace, but to make war, to prove that we're right, to stand upon our own rights and our own privileges instead of trying to love our brother or sister in Christ. Um, and, and so, I want us, instead of fight or flight, have you ever heard of Peacemakers Ministries? No? It's a really wonderful group. They have a bunch of different books put out, and they're really helpful. And their goal, their ministry, is to, to help the church grow in making peace and being peacemakers in the church. But how they phrase things is you can be a peace breaker. You know, that's that fight instinct, Right? You can be a peace faker. That's kind of what, what Ryan was talking about. We, we pretend like everything's okay in the church when there's actually deep-seated problems going on. Okay? And we don't want to be either of those things. We want to be peacemakers. Um, and I want us to think about that word and turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And I've, I've gone here many times, and many of you have had... Heard me give this counsel to you even um, recently, I think. Um, James chapter 3, and I just want us to start in verse 13, but we're looking at verse 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy... In selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace Notice, by those who make peace. Instead of pretending that peace exists when it really doesn't, instead of looking to establish my own rights and privileges in the church, we are to go and make peace. Um, And so I think that I want to have this discussion about practical ways that we can make peace if we run into a situation in the future, hopefully, or even now, where we have contention with a brother or sister in Christ, or an elder, or a deacon in Christ how we are to deal with these things in a godly, biblical way. 
Now, the way I want us to think about this is in the chronological order, maybe, of the controversy, right? So let's say that we have a perceived problem with a brother or sister in Christ. Before we go to that person, we need to do some preparatory work in our own hearts, okay? That's what I want to put out first. And I want to ask you, what preparatory work should we do in our hearts based on James chapter 3? So we know what division, the heart of division, right? It's, it's characterized in verse 14 by jealousy and selfish ambition, boasting and being false to the truth. But notice in verse 17, wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, right? So before we ever go to that brother or sister in Christ... We ought to be doing preparatory works in our heart, right? What, what would some of that look like? T- taking away our selfish desires. And I would say trying to take ourselves out of the equation at first almost entirely. Now, what do I mean by that? When we are going to make peace with somebody, it's the opposite of what I've heard maybe, I, I don't want to say without exception, but it's close, When there are two people in the church that are kind of butting heads with one another and they end up in my office, one of them ends up in my office, most of the time, what I hear coming out of the mouth and the heart of these people is, okay, well, I'll go talk to him, Pastor, if you're telling me I have to go and make peace with these people, but I really hope what? I really hope they repent, right? I hope that they they see that I'm right in this situation and that I'll repent, But this is not the first step that we ought to be taking in peacemaking. Almost always, not always, sometimes there's a clear sin that has to be addressed. We know it's wrong. We've seen it to be wrong. But often, we don't know the truth of what's going on, right? Proverbs 18 tells us that we ought not, when we hear a case, it's often the first person that seems right. But when we hear the second person, right, it changes our mind oftentimes. When we go, the first preparatory work that I believe we have to do in peacemaking is to work into our hearts. The reason I'm going to this brother and sister is really to make peace. I'm not going to prove my point. I'm not going to show that I'm right. I'm not even going in the first instance to make sure that they repent. Okay? In most situations, I'm going there with it. In my mind, I have the goal of making peace. Okay? And that changes how the whole process goes, right? I, I had a situation in this church a number of years ago where uh, I was dealing with a, a family that wanted to go and supposedly be reconciled with another family, but instead of, instead of uh, going and having this attitude that maybe I'm seeing things wrongly, maybe I'm seeing things that are not quite true, help me to understand why these things are happening. We had multiple pages of perceived sins that this family had experienced that were read for a couple of hours to this other family. Okay, Now, it's very difficult for me to conceive in any possible universe how that is trying to make peace with somebody else, right? 
Rather, you're just trying to prove your point and to show, like in a court of law, that you're right. I'm the prosecutor, you're the defendant, and I want to show that you're guilty. That is usually not the goal in biblical peacemaking, but rather we go and we're gentle, we're open to reason, impartial and sincere, full of mercy and good fruits. And turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. I believe we see this as well. We're going to be in Matthew 18 a little bit. Um, And start in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And although it's not explicitly stated in the text, the gentleness that is often required in these meetings, when you go to that brother and you're telling him his fault to you, you're not charging him that this is absolutely the case. The goal in this meeting is to sit down to make sure that you understand. I perceived that this particular thing happened, that you did this to me. But you're to lay it to that other person. Did this actually happen? Right? Um, again, so often in the pastoral office, I've had people come to us and say, this person did such and such to me. And the counsel that me and Joey almost always give is you need to go to them and ask them, did I perceive this wrong? Did I perceive this wrong? And Brother. Yes, that's right. Yes. And again, there, there are situations where it's going to be very obvious that you know this person has sinned. But typically, and I would say 99% of the time, we're going and we have a perception that there's a sin, but we don't have the actual reality of it established, right? Now, if that's the case, we need to be going with a heart of gentleness, looking to make peace and making sure that we're not misunderstanding this brother or sister. And even, as Brother Joey said, when we bring two or three witnesses, the job of the two or three witnesses isn't just to pile on this person. Okay, What does two or three witnesses remind us of in the Scripture, in the Old Testament? The law. And why was there a need for two or three witnesses? What's that? To be impartial in judgment, because there couldn't even be a charge brought before the courts if it wasn't established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So these men that are being brought, or women, are not just to pile on to this person, but rather they are there for the resp- to have the responsibility of weighing and judging what the two parties are saying. Okay, And if it comes out in that discussion that this brother is right then their testimony should stand, and then they witness to this person. So, we have a preparatory work that needs to be done. First, we need to be impartial and sincere, and for the most part, we have to work it into our hearts. I'm going to make peace, and I could be wrong. I could be perceiving something wrong in this brother or sister. Is there anything else we can do to prepare ourselves to go meet somebody if we are in a conflict. Mm. 
Matthew 5 is what you're... Yeah, that's exactly right, right? So, one of the preparatory works that we should do, maybe even before there's a particular conflict in mind, right? We should always be of the mindset that we need to take care of conflict immediately in the church, right? Rather than let it stew. One pastor that I heard... Um, I'm going to misquote this because I'm not a fisherman. Maybe our fishermen can uh, correct me here. But conflicts are like guppies. Division is like guppies. You can either deal with the one that you have or you can deal with the thousand that you're going to have in a week or two. Right? They multiply quickly. And so in the church, we need to deal with conflict quickly. And that's what we see in Matthew chapter 5 as Brother Matt is pointing out to us. Matthew chapter 5. Notice... In verse 23, other, in the context of anger, it says, So if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So notice the urgency that Jesus Christ Himself puts on making peace with brothers or sisters in Christ. If you come to the altar, if you're coming to the communion table, we could say maybe, and you remember, there's something I have, there's a conflict between myself and somebody else. Before you offer your gift, you need to take care of that. That's one of the reasons we have communion every week, by the way. It's so to be a constant reminder to the church that we partake of one body, and one bread, or we take of one bread and one cup so that we would truly live in union with one another and that that hypocrisy, if there's any of that in our heart, any conflict, we take care of it immediately. Now, it's further shown to be urgent by Jesus here because he's speaking to people in Galilee, okay, which is 60 to 70 miles away from Jerusalem where an offering would be sent to be offered. And he's saying if you go down to Jerusalem... And you remember that your brother in Galilee has something against you. You need to go back. You need to take that journey all the way back to Galilee and take care of this issue before anything else comes up. So there's this preparatory work that we should have, that there's an urgency to this, and that Christ himself does not allow these things to go on and on. They need to be taken care of in a, in a biblical way. Okay. Um, Are there any other preparatory works in our heart that we can do before we have a peacemaking encounter? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Offense, your, your own personal offense, right? And I, I think that what you're taking from that proverb, and I think I agree with you, it's not necessarily saying overlook the sin of another, but overlook the offense that you have with your own self. Miss Nancy. Amen. Yeah, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, um, do not be, be angry and do not sin. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath or your anger. That's absolutely right. And so, on top of forgetting yourself, on top of having a mind to be a peacemaker, 
you need to think positively about the person you're going to have the conflict with. One pastor that I've heard of, he would actually write out when he was going to have a conversation, a difficult conversation with somebody, he'd write out what he wanted to say to that person, and he would always start in the beginning to write a couple of sentences about the grace of God that he sees in that brother's life, right? Now, we might be dealing with an unbeliever here, but if they're in the church, we should have at least a, um, and they haven't been excommunicated up to this point, we should have a gracious opinion of these people and be willing to see the good that is in them. And we see this, I think, really strikingly in Philippians chapter 4. And I know we've gone to the same text throughout these weeks over and over, but I think it's very instructive for us. Um, Philippians chapter 4. I think that this text is almost seminal in, in how we deal with church conflict and central. Notice again, verses 2 and 3, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Notice this. So, picture in your mind, these two women are in such a conflict that Paul feels it necessary in a public letter to the church that's going to be read out loud in a public assembly to call out two women by name and say, you have to agree in the Lord. Okay? That's a striking thing. Now, Another thing that I see in the counseling office, not to make these things too personal, but it's so ubiquitous that when somebody is in conflict with another person, typically, and I think shamefully, one of the first things that comes out is a doubting of the other person's salvation, right? Even if that's implicit, like, how could they even be a Christian and do this kind of thing to me? But notice what Paul says here about these women. These two women that were probably harboring ill thoughts toward one another and their own spiritual experience, Paul takes the time to say that these women have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Right? We should remind ourselves before we go and have a hard conversation with somebody that this is a brother or sister in Christ who's labored side by side in the gospel and the church in some capacity, and their names are written in the book of life. We should remember the graces that they have and call those to mind. This isn't to butter the other person up, but it's to do a preparatory work in your heart so that you're not attacking, but rather you're trying to bring reconciliation between two sisters. Now, uh, we come to the, the, the event of the meeting, Okay? We've done this preparatory work in our heart, and we come to meet with them. The goal of the peacemaker is to present how they feel they've been offended, okay? But, as we've already discussed, to get the other person's take on the situation. And I would say, to outdo one another in showing honor, even in this particular meeting, as we read in Romans chapter 12, and... Um, I think there's some biblical principles of communication that we have to have in our minds, right? That if I'm going to go, and let's say me and Brother Joey have had conflict, which we have, you know, in small things, I think. But we sit down, and on good days, when me and Joey are disagreeing about something, we'll sit down, and we want to say to Brother Joe, okay, this is how I perceive your thinking about this particular issue Am I understanding that correctly, right? So I want to 
communicate to Joe, and really in my heart, I want to have it as a central tenet that I'm here to learn and understand where my brother or sister is coming from in this particular situation. Now, it may be, as we've discussed it, Joey says, oh, you, you totally misunderstood me. I, I didn't mean it in the way that you perceived it. In fact, this happened. I had a, I had a let's say that we were in the parking lot, and I went to wave at Brother Joe and wish him a happy Lord's Day, and he drove by a puddle, splashed me with mud, uh, and I looked in his rearview mirror, and he covers his eyes as not even to look at me, and I'm just deeply offended, and I go to Joe, okay? And Joey tells me, oh, you, you've misun- you misunderstood. Heather called me, right? And, and she needed me there because she had, man, I, I got to be careful with these random, she'd fallen or something. And, and I, I went by, and then when I turned the corner, the sun was in my eyes, and so I blocked it. I, I'm sorry, brother, that I did that to you, but you misperceived what happened. You'd be shocked how often that those kind of things happen in the church. Not just like that, obviously. Um, but that could happen. But also, Joe could say, you know, brother, I really was sinfully angry with you that day. And I, I didn't even want to look at you in the face after I had uh, sinfully sped by you and... And splashed you, right? But the goal of myself in entering that conversation is is for Joe to open it up so that Joe could either um, clear himself, right? To explain himself or to repent, right? But if I come to Joe with a hammer, you know, and I want with a sword to Joe to spill his last drop of blood for what he did to me, Joe's not going to feel... comfortable to repent, even though he might should repent anyway, right? And he certainly is not going to feel like he needs to explain himself if I misunderstood him, right? Instead, I'm just spreading offense instead of trying to make peace. Does that make sense? Brother. So, in this case, I was trying to figure out if it operates the same way, but in this case, it's the offended. I, I think, yeah, that's a great point, brother. I think we see that in Matthew 5, what we just read. You're at the altar, you remember your brother has something against you, right? I, I think in these two situations, we see both the offended party and the offending party, right? Both of them in Christian doctrine, you're to go and make peace with your brother. If I'm. No, yeah, no. It, and that's, that's a good point. And I'm taking it from the typical stance where it's somebody that's offended that wants to go and talk to somebody rather than the one that's sinned. And I think it's even clearer, if, if you've sinned against a brother or sister, you need not make any excuses about it, right? You need to go to them, acknowledge your sin fully, totally fully. And as we've talked about in the last couple sermons, never saying, you made me angry, you made me do this, you made me react this way. If we're going and confessing sin, we need to totally, completely, with no excuses, own our sin. Okay? But the same thing is true if we're the offended party. Because we're never sinless in in these interactions. Okay? Let's take the example, the fictitious example of me and Joe in the parking lot. Right? Going to Joe, I not only want to say this happened and explain myself, I would want to repent 
and say, Joe, how I perceive that wrong or right, it caused me to have all sorts of sinful thoughts in my heart come up about you. And, and I want to confess my heart sins that I've had against you, or actual sins. And I went home and blabbed my mouth to my wife about you, how I couldn't believe that you did such a thing. I want to confess all those sins, right? Not only is that a good and right thing to do to confess our sins before our brothers and sisters that we might be healed, but again... Even if we're the party that doesn't have the primary offense in this situation, it is helpful because it opens up the other brother's heart to say, I sinned against you too, right? We want to encourage and help along the repentance process if we can, right? Never being dishonest, never making up sins that we actually don't perceive, right? But we want to help along that process. And as Proverbs tells us, a, a a soft tongue breaks the bone, right? Gentle words are used by the Lord. And we, we see that in 2 Timothy, and a text I bring up very consistently. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. It says, The Lord's servant, and I'm, I'm just reading it quickly for time's sake, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now, we ought to be gentle, but I'm going to put it towards you today that this text is most helpfully used in that preparing our heart, that preparatory work, right? Paul is writing to Timothy, saying... You're going to encounter false teachers in the future. You need to be this way, right? We need to prepare our hearts. We need to be gentle. Okay. Um, so we're in the meeting. That should be the, the style and attitude of our meeting. We're seeking peace. We're seeking to be gentle. We're seeking to be understood. We do not have time to go through everything that I have planned to go through. Um, so let, let's... Let's... let's continue to talk about how we can talk in the meeting, but then in the next weeks we'll talk about follow-up, how we deal with the person after the meeting, if that's necessary. But um, when we're talking, we want to try to be understood, and so our language should be, okay, you said this, we need to repeat back, be able to repeat back what that brother or sister said. Am I understanding you correctly? This is what you said. Um, Seeking to be understood And I would say maybe finally, and we'll take some questions after this, finally, if it's not going well, which sometimes it doesn't, people, even though we've tried to do a preparatory work in our hearts, we've tried to encourage the other person to repentance by repenting ourselves, by being gentle, sometimes it just goes badly. And people are fighting anyway. We need to have the the wisdom to be able to take a break when things are no longer progressing and meet again at another time. Okay, Um, sometimes these things take time to work through. So, do we have any questions or thoughts? Hopefully it's made some sense to you. Michelle B. Yeah. Well, it depends on what the situation is, okay? We should be asking ourselves, is this an offense, a sin, that 
that can be covered. I think part of the conversation is does this other person see it to be a sin? And that should cause us to ask the question, is it sin? Okay. Another common problem that me and Joe see often in the counseling office is people coming and complaining about somebody. And then when we ask, well, where, where in the law of God, where in the word of God do you see this clearly condemned as sin? And it com- comes to be very easily recognized, this isn't actually sin. My preferences are just irked a little bit. This is a personality issue or uh, a matter of, of little significance, right? I can't point to the Word of God and say, this is where the Word of God says that you're in sin. Okay, So we need to be asking those questions. And then, if, if it is sin, and they agree that it's sin, if they don't agree it's sin, we, we need to continue the conversation, I think. If it's clear. And then we need to bring in other people for that. But, if it's... Um, if it is sin, they admit that it's sin, we need to ask ourselves several questions. Is this a repeated problem in that particular brother or sister's life, right? Is it caused problems before in other churches with other groups of people? And the reason we need to ask that question is for that brother or sister's good. They're destroying themselves. They're destroying their their relationship with the church family. And so that is going to put in our mind a, a gauge to how hard we need to be pushing at this, right? And there are probably several other questions that we could ask, but we need to be thoughtfully considering those kinds of questions. I would say, as well, we, we read in Philippians 4 that uh, he's, Paul tells... The Philippian church, he says, um, oh, forgive me, I'm going to mess it up if I don't turn to it here. Um, Paul says, um, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me. So the true companion could be the church as a whole, which I think is reasonable, but it also could be the elders of the church. Right? It could be this Greek word syzygis, could be the name of a person. It was a common name at the time. Right? He could have been the elder of the Philippian church or one of the elders. I would say, go to your elders, not to complain about this person, not to downgrade them, but to ask them, how can I make peace in this particular situation? Because... Me and Joey's job, a large part of it's taken up in, in trying to make peace among the congregation, right? Um, we've dealt with these situations before. We've made bad mistakes before. We've told people the wrong things before. And I believe we've learned from some of those mistakes. And I believe that we would be able to remind you of these principles and, and send you on your way, maybe a little bit more biblically framed, to make peace, um, any other thoughts, questions, comments? Brother? And these principles that we discussed, I think that they fit a number of different contexts. They fit your family context, right, that's outside of the church. They, they fit your church body. But I, I think that these principles are universally applied to even those outside the church. We, we need to be making peace with, with people, right? 
Just because they're in another church and they have different theological beliefs and all this, especially if they're a brother or sister in Christ, we need to be making peace. We have the same level of urgency as anything else, right? The only urgency that's added in the church is that it can spread pretty, pretty quickly, if not dealt with, in a close group of people, right? Yeah, we need to agree in the Lord, and I know that I keep... Uh, so, Philippians chapter 2, I, I think that we have agree in the Lord somewhat defined for us, um, and I'll end on this note. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, in this church that is characterized in some degree by, by division, even if it's just between these two women... Says so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being a full accord and of one mind. Notice verse 3. I believe he's defining those things for us to some degree. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Right? We, we have a common goal. We are marching side by side for the faith, the defense of the faith, the spread of the faith, the growth of the church. We need to put aside secondary and tertiary things and keep the main thing the main thing, the gospel. The gospel, yeah. I just have to mention yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's right. And we, we think of the example of Christ when we're making peace, right? He, he came, he laid down his life in order to save us, right? We're, we're not going to kill the other brother so that we'll feel more peaceful. Okay, Miss Nancy? Sure, yeah. Well, yeah, that, yeah. First Peter 2. First Peter 2, yeah, he, uh, he did not open his mouth, right? But it said that this was a good thing. God was saying something Yeah, yeah, I, I think that you're referring to First Peter 2 and 3, where you have several instances of that. And, uh, yeah, uh, so I'll, I'll just read them quickly, even though we're past time here. Um, and if this isn't what you're looking for, I'm sorry, but we have to end after this. So First uh, Peter 3 and 13 is what I think you're looking for. Um, I'm going to read from verse 8 to, oh boy, 17 and we'll end. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this, to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy." 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we come before you in the name of your Son. Um, Lord, I know that we went through a, a lot of things and a little bit of time. I pray that you bless these things to us and that uh, even though there are few of us here today, I pray that peacemaking making principles would be just a part of our church's DNA, that uh, when we think of Redeemer Covenant Church, we would think that we are absolutely committed to making peace with one another according to biblical principles and precepts. Um, I pray that you would be with us today. I pray that you would guide us, and I pray that you would give us wisdom in all things in Christ's name. Amen.